This message was shared from the pulpit at Good News Baptist Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org. What a day. It's, a, it's an exciting day. It's always exciting when history is made, I think. I, I love history. I taught history for three years. Um, and uh, I, uh, I remember when I was in high school, part one, uh, of, you know, before the Civil War. But uh, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, but uh, no, I love history. Today's a historical day. It really is. Um, but it is a, it's an it's, it's interesting day. Just the, it's a little surreal. Uh, watching an inauguration with not and nobody there, uh, really, for, for what we've seen in the past, uh, even though we fought about crowds in the past, uh, but uh, not a big crowd. And, and, uh, but it is a great day to pray for our president. And so we're going to go to the Lord in prayer here. I'll mention some of the prayer requests that uh, Pastor had also mentioned, but I am going to take time to pray for our president. Uh, you know, as, uh, some, of, some of us don't have the luxury of complaining too much about our commander-in-chief. Uh, and so, uh, and so it is what it is, and uh, we will obey those orders that are of those appointed over us. So uh, that's the way we, we work, and uh, and I am I am appreciative of our past president. Many things he did uh, that uh, even in the military for four years we saw the benefit of that, and so I'm appreciative of that, and uh, I am thankful that it was a peaceful day relatively, uh, and so I didn't think I really didn't expect it to be otherwise, you know. So. Uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. We'll ask God to, to bless our president, bless our nation. We'll also ask to, to, uh, God to answer the needs here, and then we'll ask him to bless our time and our, our learning opportunity this evening. Would you bow with me in prayer? Our dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day. Father, it is a day that many have been looking forward to. Uh, it's been a day uh, where many are we're kind of not necessarily dreading, but just not excited about. Uh, Father, we look at this day, and in our minds and, and in the history of our nation, it is a, it's an important day. In the course of human events, it's fairly minuscule. And certainly, on your timeline and from your viewpoint, today is a day that is no more important than it's the day of salvation. And so, Father, I do pray for our president. Lord, I thank you for this country. I'm thankful that I get to serve it. But I do pray for our commander-in-chief. Lord, I pray that you would watch over him. Father, I do want to be careful that I, I don't ask just simple blessings on him for the, because he is our president. But, Father, I do ask that, that you would bless him. And he is a human. He is a man. Would you give him wisdom? Would he reach out to you for it? Father, I'd ask that you would confound those things that uh, would be harmful, would be unrighteous. But Father, I also know that you have used kings and presidents, and you have used those in authority to put pressure on your church, to bring them back to you. So Father, more than, Lord, just peace and comfort and allowing us to cry, peace, peace, when there is no peace, I pray, Father, that we would see revival. And I'm careful of how I beg for that, knowing that it may be a difficult time. That brings it. But, Lord, I pray that you would 
hear the prayers of your people that we would humble ourselves and pray and seek your face and turn from our wicked way. Lord, I pray that we would hear from heaven and I pray that you would heal our land. Lord, even though we do ask for that, there are many in this congregation tonight, not maybe here, but represented because there are members here who need healing in their lives. Lord, there's many who are sick. Father, not just with this COVID disease that seems to some days be an annoyance, some days it does bring a little anxiety to some. And Father, there's those who have been physically attacked by it, Lord, and I thank you for the healing you brought. There's others who it's still taking its toll on them. I pray that you would touch them and heal them. Lord, I look forward to the day when we can be a body of Christ gathered together. Lord, not just for the sake of getting together as a group, but so that we can again join together in corporate worship of you. So I pray that you would heal those and bring them back. And then there's others, Lord, who are facing things that seem to be happening all the time with cancers and sicknesses and illnesses. Lord, I pray that you would use those opportunities in their life to draw them close to you. Lord, would you use even the illness and the sickness to take their attention? Lord, I pray that they would focus it on you. And Lord, in the end, Lord, I pray that they would thank you, even if that means thanking you for cancer. And thanking you, even if it means thanking you for the blessings you bring in those illnesses. But Father, from our human perspective, it is our desire, we ask that you would heal them. Bring them back to full health. But Lord, not our will, but yours be done. Lord, I pray that as we look at this lesson tonight, you would help us to think clearly, think biblically, think properly. Lord, I pray that what I say won't be a distraction and it won't be uh, something that... Uh, uh, would d distract not just in their thoughts, and, but also, Lord, I pray that I wouldn't distract from the Word of God. I pray that I wouldn't add to it, that I wouldn't take away from it. Father, I pray that we would stay within the bounds of Scripture. Father, I pray that you would help us to learn so that we could be better witnesses for you as it is our desire and it is the command that you have given us to go into all the world and preach the gospel. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you remember last week, um, I'll just very quickly review because, again, do not want to bore you, uh, but we had talked about uh, just the, the, the nature of the way we think in our culture and how we got to the point where we are. And if you remember, I had mentioned that I uh, kind of went through the history of thought and uh, we started with the Greco-Roman where we said that object objective truth can be known or reasoned through some sort of correspondence to things. And that, that was the, uh, uh, really, it was Plato and Aristotle who had the philosophy of ideas. There's ideas out there. Then we moved into the Middle Ages, which taught us that as we look back at history, that object objective truth only corresponds to the divine as manifested through the church. And then we went quickly through the Renaissance, the Reformation, but we got to the Enlightenment, and we kind of stayed there for a little while on the Enlightenment, and we found that objective truth, the Enlightenment taught us that the objective truth, I say it taught us, it 
kind of came up with its own concepts of truth. Objective truth can be discovered through rational thought. And, and that's a very dangerous place to be where you think that you th can think yourself to anything. Very quickly, you'll drive yourself crazy. The Enlightenment then introduced us to modernism. And uh, modernism is uh, uh, the idea that objective truth can only be discovered through the senses. In other words, uh, what you taste, what you touch, what you see, that is truth and there is nothing else. And that gave way then to postmodernism. It's taught us that where we are today, that not only can you get truth through your senses, but whatever you sense is true. And that's very dangerous. And that's what we are. We're in a very dangerous place in our thinking. Um, it's pretty much, for lack of better, the verse, every man is doing right in their own eyes. Your truth is your truth. And then I mentioned four different gentlemen. If you remember last week, I said these four have influenced Western thought and the way we think more than anyone. The first was John Locke. And remember, John Locke was the guy who said that your life is like this blank sheet of paper, the tabula rasa. And as a, uh, on this blank piece of paper, when you're born, you don't have any ideas at all. There's no innate ideas. You are just this blank piece of paper, and you begin to write on it from birth, and that's how you learn. David Hume was our next guy. He took that and he said, no, I don't, I don't really agree with that. Um, you know, you, you, don't, you're not, you don't have any innate ideas and you're not really this blank piece of paper, but we really can't know anything. And the only things we know is just what we observe. He's part of the Enlightenment. What we observe, and really we can only say, well, that happened. There's really no way to know anything else. And then I mentioned Immanuel Kant, who... Uh, Immanuel Kant, he said that, uh, or if some people say Immanuel Kant, uh, Immanuel Kant, he, he said, no, we do have these innate ideas. Every person is born with this, this, this framework where they know certain things and they have this certain moral ideas about them. And if you remember, I said that's a very dangerous place. Don't get that confused with what the Bible says, where the Bible tells us that the law of God is written on our hearts. That's not what Kant was saying. Kant was saying that you have this moral fiber within you that you can reason yourself to right, and right action to moral behavior. And then the last gentleman we mentioned was George Hegel. Now, George Hegel has been termed kind of the last of the philosophers. They say even like this, that he put a cap on philosophy, which really started with Plato and ends with Hegel. And it was Hegel who said, really, the only way we know anything is we have an event and another event. We have a thesis and an antithesis, and we put it together, and we have a synthesis. And that synthesis then becomes our truth. Now, here is where we have taken that, and we've gone off even further than what Hegel would have said. He would not have said that what you experienced, that synthesis, was untrue. What we say today, when I say we, I'm talking in our culture. What our culture says today is you can take that thesis, that antithesis, put it together in that synthesis, and it becomes true. 
And they add that, we're going to talk about this in a second, the law of non-contradiction to it, which says, well, just really, you can't be true and not true at the same time. So whatever is true now is the only truth. And so what was true is no longer true because this is now true. And we can correct history that way now. Because what we have is our experiences and our world, and we can look back at history, and we can take our own moral narrative, and we can interpose it back onto history and say, look how racist, look how horrible these people were. Because we have now our truth. It's a self-defeating, though, mentality, because guess what your children are going to say about you? Those who were riding last summer, just wait. You're now going to be the racist next year. It's all a matter of time. It's a self-defeating philosophy. Because what is true, even as I say that, I've already synthesized it with something else. Now I've got a new truth. And that leaves us with absolutely no absolute truth. And we become very frustrated. But that's the culture we live in. And that's a very brief, very waved, 30,000-foot view of how we've gotten to how we think today. But the way we think is we really don't think. And so now what we'd like to look at this evening is what do we do about it? So, in theory, this is where I was going to start the class. All right? This is the first lesson in apologetics. If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. I am confident you've heard of this verse. It's an important verse. It is one of my favorite verses. I don't think I have heard a better sermon on this verse than just about three or four months ago. I forget how long it was in Teen Takeover. Manny Ramirez preached on this verse. All right. So, uh, we're going to look at this in Matthew chapter 3, verse 15. But, sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Who would like to point out the word that gives us the name of our class? Who's willing to step out on a limb and impress us with your knowledge? Yes, to make a defense, or what we see here, to give or ask it, uh, be, be able to give an answer. That word there in the Greek is apologia or apologia or however you want to say it, however you want to put that, uh, that uh, emphasis on the syllable or if you put the wrong emphasis on the wrong syllable, you can mess it up. But we, whoever knows Greek here, you can correct me later. But apologia here is the word to give a defense. But I think what I, what I think we do is we often, we, we, we get to that point where we say, hey, I want to I talk about giving a defense or giving an answer. 
But to me, the most important word in this verse is not that be ready to give an answer, but it is the ready to give an answer that asketh you a, what's the word? Reason. A reason. You say, why is that important? I'm going to get to it, but the root of that word root reason, it's the same root in the word apologia. It's the word Lagos. The word Lagos. Where have we heard that word? You say, I haven't heard that word ever. Where in, else in the Bible do we see that word Lagos? Anybody remember? Not in Greek, in English, it's translated what? What is it? The word. In the beginning was the word, the Lagos. It's the same root for give an answer. It's, though it's this word right here, the reason. We have to be able to provide the reason from the word of God. But I'm going to take that a little further tonight. So we look at that. We have to be able to uh, give this answer of the reason. And, and I think we also have to point in here and point this out. A reason of the hope that lies within us. If we think in apologetics that we're going to win an argument and we never give hope, we have failed. In fact, all we've done is we have gone on a nice academic exercise, maybe some intellectual banter with someone else, but we have left them with no hope. We have failed 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. There's three components to our evangelism and our apologetic. We have to be able to give an answer. It has to be of the reason. We can't just give... Crazy answers, and that's what a lot of Christians do. They just give out answers. It has to be of the reason, and it has to provide hope. That idea of reason, though, I think there's so much more to it than simply taking your Bible and saying, well, I'm going to open it up, and I'm going to just start reading it to them. Or maybe I'm going to just hit them over the head with my Bible, and I'm going to evangelize them. And I feel that's a lot of the way our Christianity has become over the last 20th century. And you've seen it, and I, and I want to be very careful. I don't, again, point fingers back in the past. We have a very different culture today. It's, it's an extremely different culture than the day where you could go to the street corner and you could preach. I'm not confident that's the most effective way to evangelize. There was a day, and, and, I, and I do think you can still, in some parts of the country, you can go door knocking. And you can go knock on those doors, cold door knocking. And people would come to the door, and they would talk to you. I don't even answer the door for Amazon. And Amazon's important right now, right? We let it ring. We, let, we, we have even the ring doorbell where you can see who's at your door before I even answer. There's been people from church who have showed up at our door, and we've screened our calls. I'm just kidding. We, we answered the door. 
It's a different culture. And so what I would like to encourage is as we look at our culture and we know where our culture's coming from, how are we giving the reason? How are we giving them hope? And it's not really uncommon for us to understand the cultural context as we give the gospel. In fact, if you go to Acts chapter 1, verse 3, we have a very interesting verse, probably another one of my favorites. Acts 1, verse 3, when Jesus had died and he had rose again, it, and, he, and he comes, he's on the earth, he, it says here, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion, after his suffering, by many infallible proofs. When Jesus was showing himself alive, he, it says infallible proofs. Being seen of them 40 days, it explained, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. He used things where they could look at in their culture and say, I can't deny that he's, he's alive. I can't deny it. These are proofs. These are infallible proofs. I, there, there's no denying it. And I think today we still have infallible proofs. You say, well, look how they saw it. Being seen of him 40 days, we've not seen him. And speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom, we haven't heard him. How do we still have infallible proofs today? That's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at things that I believe are still some infallible proofs. So the purpose of the class that I would like to this evening is to explain then what Christian apologetics is and communicate why Christian apologetics matters to you. And I trust this evening that you'll see that the discipline is integral to evangelism and it's necessary for all Christians. Don't be scared. Don't sit there and say, well, you know what? I cannot think of all those arguments that I need to have. But I want to show why apologetics is important. I hope our time together, I hope it simply just whets your appetite for the next few weeks of material to think about how to connect. Listen, this is what we want to do. We want to connect the what of our Christian worldview with the how of evangelism. And how we're going to do that, we're going to connect the what, what we believe, with the how, evangelism. We're going to connect it with the why of apologetics. Why? Have you ever asked yourself, why do I believe what I believe? And you may have the bumper sticker, and you may be content to say, God said it, that settles it, I believe it. But how do you know God said it? So I read it in my Bible. How do you know the Bible is true? Because God said it. How do you know God said it? Because it's in the Bible. How do you know the Bible's true? Because God said. And what we've just done is we've done circular reasoning. And I think there is more to it than just this vicious circle where we really don't have a good explanation. Because if you have circular reasoning, you don't have a reason. I think we can get there. It's fundamentally important to realize that then your theology and your doctrine, what you believe, 
manifest or make known what your worldview is. Pastor mentioned Christian worldview. And we're going to talk a little bit about Christian worldview right now. Or a worldview. What is a worldview? In other words, what you believe or do not believe about God will determine how you view the world. So, it's evangelism that will demonstrate how you live that worldview out. What do I mean by that? There's two types of evangelism. There is confrontational evangelism. Now, don't let that scare you. You don't, I'm not, it's not mean, but there is no, there is, there is not a replacement for confronting someone with the gospel. What I mean by that is when you go, to, when you go into all the world and preach the gospel, you are confronting people with the gospel. It is confrontational evangelism. I don't mean you're not badgering them, you're not being mean, but you are confronting them. There is also exemplary evangelism. We've gotten a place in our culture, and it's not as popular now, but it was back in the 90s, what was called lifestyle evangelism. Where people say, you know what, I don't need to confront people with the gospel. All I need to do is live right. And I, you know, and have you ever been there? Have you ever been walking through the mall? Or do, people, do they have malls anymore? I've not gone in a long time. You're walking through Walmart. It's like a mall, right? They have everything. You're walking through Walmart, and you're, you're just minding your own business. I mean, you're dressed nice, and, and, and you're, you're driving the cart on the right side of the uh, aisle, which is abnormal. And, uh, and you're in Walmart, and someone comes up to you, and they said, I just saw you get Cheerios off of that shelf, and you did it with such aplomb. Tell me about your Jesus. It doesn't happen. Not in the Walmart I go to. <laughs> Bunch of heathens. Lifestyle evangelism, yeah. Should you live correctly? You certainly should. But exemplary evangelism, people should see your life, and the more you build that relationship with them, the more they get to know, they should notice that something's different about you. But you should be looking for the opportunity to share the gospel with them. And the problem in our culture and our society is we're becoming so in, introspective, we're becoming so inward-looking that we're not outward-looking and we're not looking for opportunities to evangelize. We sit in our church and we'll say, hey, I'll bring someone in and they'll visit. And I hope pastor preaches on the gospel that day. And we'll pat ourselves on the back and say, I've evangelized. You have yet to confront them with the gospel. You say, I'm not sure I'm comfortable with that. I don't know what to say. You're right. We live in a culture that thinks differently than us. And it's difficult at times to hold the conversation and feel like you're making sense because you're, start, you're like two ships passing in the night. You have different definitions of words. That's what we want to look is how do we get down to actually where we actually do see some things in common. So your worldview it is apologetics that interprets your worldview by giving the reasons why you hold that worldview. So everyone has a worldview. 
So what is a worldview? A worldview is simply the lens through which you view the world. Now, that term was first coined again by this guy, Immanuel Kant. Immanuel Kant did a lot to influence the way we think. He, he termed the word in his book, A Critique of Pure Reason, where he used the term to describe one's, get this, you ready? You can write this down, outlook on the world. Worldview, outlook on the world. That's life-shattering, I know. But it comes from a German word, Weltanschwung, which means simply someone's perception of the world. I mean, we're getting deep here. A worldview is how you view the world. But it's not good to use the word in your definition. So let's define it this way. A worldview is the convergence of the thoughts and concepts of the world around us. The convergence of the thoughts and concepts of the world around us. You may say, and that doesn't help me at all. It is a collection of your attitudes, your values, the stories you've heard, expectations about the world around you, which inform every thought and action. Worldview is expressed through your ethics, your religion, your philosophy, scientific beliefs. I think we could say the world, your worldview will inform five specific things. Now, your doctrine is going to determine your worldview. This is going to be interesting as we look at this. It may even be confusing. And if it's confusing, that's on me because I'm not portraying it correctly. But your theology determines your worldview. We can't get that backwards. Our worldview does not determine our theology. We didn't wake up one day and say, I think I want to have the biblical worldview. I'm going to open the Bible, and I'm going to just have the biblical worldview. Actually, we, the Bible, how you cannot come to Christ. You can't know him uh, except uh, you, you have to have faith, and faith cometh by the hearing of the word of God. That word of God is going to determine what your worldview is. We don't place judgment on the word of God and say, yes, I'll accept it, I'll believe it. It, it. We don't discern it. The Bible has to discern us. But, the, but your worldview is going to inform five specific things. One, the existence of God. The existence of God. It, it answers the question, is there a God? Is there a God? And what we're going to look at is where I think it's not sufficient to say, I believe God because the Bible tells me so. The devils believe and tremble. And they've not read Scripture. In fact, you'll see in Romans chapter 1 that if we just said, I only believe there's a God because the Bible tells me so, then how does it leave those thousands without an excuse even if they've never read the Word of God. Psalm 19 answers that question for us. The firmament showeth forth His handiwork. We see God around us. Now, it's incomplete, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But our worldview determines the, or asks the question or about, is there a God? It also answers or asks the question, what is ultimate reality? What is ultimate reality? 
It asks, what is the supreme, final, and fundamental thing in, in, in reality? Everybody close your eyes. Or don't. You can rebel. Close your eyes. I have my eyes open. Are things still here? You can open your eyes. Did reality disappear? I don't know. I couldn't see. It wasn't there. You close your eyes. And, and I, my brothers and sisters used to do this to me. I've seen my kids do this to my, their brothers and sisters. Try to convince them that they don't exist. I said, what kind of family did you grow up in? <laughs> it was rough. But try to convince, you know, you don't. I mean, one day we just pretended my brother was invisible all day long. It was exciting. What is the ultimate reality? You can close your eyes, but the world is still is. It's still here. It asks the question, what is the source of knowledge? How do we know what we know? Your worldview will determine that. In fact, there's really only two worldviews. There is naturalism. Think in your mind, if you would, of a box. Just a box. And inside that box, if I could have a board here, I'd write in that box, nature. And that box is closed. And a natural, someone who's a naturalist would say, everything we know about the world is in that box. That's all we know. What we touch, what we can sense, that's all we know is in that box. That's the one type of worldview. Then there is the one where you've got the box with nature, but open the box. And outside that box is God. And it's a biblical worldview where, yes, there are things inside that we sense, but there is also a God of this universe that, guess what? No matter how many proofs I give you, no matter how many logical arguments I portray, we can't prove his existence with just logic. We do have to go back to the word of God that he says he is. We have to look at nature and things, and we have to put it together. So what is, how do we know what we know? Our worldview world also informs our ethical behavior. What is right and wrong? You say, doesn't the Bible do this? Yeah, because we have a biblical worldview. But I also want to just challenge you that there's other people who come into the conversation that you're going to have with, that you'll talk to, who will also have an opinion on where God, the existence of God, ultimate reality, what is real, how they know what they think they know, what they believe is right and wrong. And then the fifth thing is human nature. What are those innate qualities of every human being? Five things that your worldview will tell you. Your existence of God, your ultimate reality, your source of knowledge, your ethical behavior, and your human nature. Your worldview helps answer those questions. But what informs your worldview? Your theology and doctrine should. But what informs your theology and doctrine? And this is where Christians are challenged. Because they'll say, I was taught that in church. 
Or maybe there's some who will say, you, you can't convince me I'm wrong because, man, I've just experienced it. There are others who will say, no, it's just the Bible. It's simple to say it's the Bible that determines your worldview, but how does it do that? Here's where I'm going to make some of you very uncomfortable tonight. You can only understand the Bible. Are you ready? You can only understand the Bible through rational thought. You can only understand the Bible through rational thought. Now, before you think I'm going to bow to the God of logic here, Consider this, all right? I'm going to give you a couple of illustrations, or arguments and some illustrations. Why do, we use, why do we only understand the Bible using logic, irrational thought? There are three laws in logic, three basic laws. Do you know what they are? The first one is the law of non-contradiction. The law of non-contradiction. The law of non-contradiction simply says this. A cannot be B and not be at the same time and in the same sense. I say, I don't understand that. You cannot be something and not be something at the same time. So let's say here, uh, David Bassnett is a man. David Bassnett cannot be a man and not a man at the same time and in the same sense. You say, oh, yeah, he can be a man, not a man. He was a boy. Not in the same sense then, all right? You can't be a man and not a man at the same time and in the same sense. Here's another one. Well, let me go back and give you an illustration of that. The Bible says God is not a man that he should lie. The Bible uses the law of non-contradiction. God is not a man. God cannot be man and not man at the same time. can't not be not. We're going to use too many knots in there if we're not careful. But there we see, if we could draw it up here, God is not a man that he should lie. We're going to go further in that, and we're going to look and see. You know, we could say, well, didn't, was, what, didn't, wasn't Jesus born? Was he incarnate? Didn't he become a man? Yeah, and you know what's beautiful as you look at it? That verse in Timothy that says, and he endured such contradictions of sinners. We're going to see he's above the laws that we, we live by. But we see that the law of non-contradiction. Let's move on. The law, another logical law, is the law of the excluded middle. Okay, so if you have two contradictory propositions... Two contradictory statements. Guess what? One is true, and one is false. Ooh. That's just the simple the law, of the law of the excluded middle. If you have two contradictions, you have one is true, and one is false. So if you say, if Jesus says, I am the way, how many ways are there? That's the law of the excluded middle. He, employ, he employs it right there. And we look at that and we say, as Bible believers, we say, there's only one way to heaven. Why? Because the Bible tells us. How do we know that? Because we, whether we do it mentally or not, or we didn't say, you know what, I, I'm going to employ the law of con contradiction to this and uh, see if it pans out. 
No, we look at that and we say intuitively, that's the law of non or that's the law of the excluded middle. Intuitively. You may not verbally say that, but that's what you're saying. That is a logical law. And the Bible uses it. The third one is the law of identity. The law of identity. Each thing is identical with itself. Let's say, what in the world does that mean? That means a rose is a rose is a rose is a rose. So if you ever say, I believe the Bible because it's true, what you're saying is the Bible is the word of God, is the word of God, is the word of God, is the word of God. God and the Word of God, it's identical. It is who He is. There are no contradictions in it. And every time we use those kind of, that kind of language where we say, this is what I believe, you are employing these logical laws. You're working out these logical laws. Now, you're doing it intuitively. You're not sitting there contemplating and saying, really, I want to really see if this works. But my point is that you do this every day. You use that. In fact, we communicate using laws. And as we communicate using laws, we, we understand what each other is saying. When I am speaking, I am using language that you understand. And you only understand it because you understand that words have certain definitions. It's even easier to see when we write. My name is Tavis. I employ the law of non-contradiction every day when, I when I'm called Tavis. My name is Tavis. It is not Tavis. My name cannot be Tavis and not Tavis at the same time and in the same sense. My name has in that I'll break it down further. My, the second letter of my name is an A. You may say, well, A has multiple sounds to it, so can it have multiple definitions, multiple names? Don't you have multiple names? I know. My name is Tavis. I only have one name. Tavis is Tavis is Tavis. It's not Tavis. It's not Travis. There's no R in my name. It's Tavis. I employ the laws of non-contradiction every day. And how do I do that? Through communication. We speak. When we open the Bible and we read it, we read words, letters on a page that mean something. And we know that, hey, this is where subjects and verbs go, and this is what they mean, and this is what letters. And when I get to the word T-H-E, the, I don't think it says A because the can't be A because it's the. We employ laws of logic all the time. But don't take my word for it. The Bible does it. Go to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. This is perhaps one of the models of apologetic discourse. And it's the conversation Jesus has with Nicodemus. And really, I just want to, we're not going to read through the whole passage here. I just want to point out some things. Remember, Nicodemus comes to Jesus. He comes to him by night. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. First of all, Nicodemus comes and says, hey, I have a definition of God. 
and you're meeting it. Because only God can do miracles. He started to employ the laws of logic here. And he started to make some inferences. Jesus, here's a, here's a beautiful example of evangelistic apologetics. Jesus, you're going to notice, never says, hey, Nicodemus, would you like to accept me as your Savior? Hey, hey Nicodemus, is this a good time? Would you like to bow and pray? Jesus starts off, and he, he lays the groundwork. He says to, G, to Nicodemus, Jesus, said unto, Jesus say, answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, or truly, truly, hey, this is true, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He says that's the way to heaven. Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He goes on, Nicodemus then says to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Now Nicodemus has a different frame of reference. Nicodemus is thinking one thing, and Jesus very gently pulls him back over and says, again, truly, truly, verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. He says, flesh is flesh. What law does he employ there? It is the law of identity. What is spirit is spirit. What is flesh is flesh. And he continues on with this conversation with Nicodemus. And he's employing laws of logic. And you may sit there and say, okay, how does that affect me? My point this evening is this, that these laws that we use every day, I believe these are examples that we see in Romans chapter 1 that should be pointing unbelievers to God. We're going to look at it a little more in detail next week when we talk about the existence of God and some of the arguments for the existence of God, and one being that in order to have laws, you must have a lawgiver. Laws of logic are things we live by and we employ. They're order. Their design. And every time we employ these laws of logic, we're saying in our world, there is no chaos. There is no ambiguity on everything. There is absolute truth. Isn't that what a law is? A law is absolute. And every time, even the way we, the, the ability to read our Bible We have to be rational thinking beings. We are not just robots. Another example of inference is in Matthew chapter 16, verses 1 through 4. Do you remember when when the Pharisees, they came and they said to Jesus, hey, give us a sign uh, of of the kingdom. And he he says, when you look at the sky at night and it's red, you know that the next day is going to be what? going to be a good day. And in the morning, if the sky is red, you know it's not going to be a good day. Do we not use that today? Hey, red sky at night, sailors delight. Red sky in the morning, sailors take warning. You know what that is? That's inference. Now, whether someone, some Jewish 
man taught his Jewish son. He says, hey, look at the sky tonight. It's red. That means that it's going to be a good day tomorrow. And the next day, the, son wrote, or the, the boy got up and he sees that and he says, hey, it's a, it's a nice day today. My dad was right. And he tells his son and his son, and they go pretty, but regardless, you say, well, they've, they've experienced it. Yeah, they've experienced it, it but they all, there was an inference there that they had learned a lesson and they could apply it using logic. And I think it answers the verse in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, that I think we misunderstand often. Actually, we need to start with verse 18. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them. For God has showed it unto them. We'll get to verse 20. That may be known of God is manifest in them. My whole point tonight is the very fact that you can think It pushes the agenda, the secularist agenda out. It, it makes it self-defeating. The fact that you can think, you can have rational thought. Be, let me be careful. I am not saying you can rationally think your way to God. But I am saying the very fact that you can think. Because that's how God communicates to us. We have to read. Did you know when you read your Bible, you have to think? When you, when you read those words on that page, you see just shapes, but it conjures in your mind something and it communicates to you, the fact that you can do that, there is order and design. And to me, that is one of the telltale signs. Not that we know God exists, but that we have, for lack of better God is showing himself to us every day. And he's showing himself not just to Christians. And that's what I want to make careful. I want to make sure I, I, I get that across that just because we can read the Bible, just mean, man, well, we, <laughs> good thing we got this. And now I'm a thinking person. Even the unregenerate is a thinking person, but their thinking is tainted. But the point of apologetics is to show them you, you know, if you actually thought, if you actually use the mental faculties that you've been blessed with, you're going to find you're without excuse. I don't know if I'm making myself clear in what I'm trying to say, but as we look at verse 20 in Romans chapter 1, look at it, it goes on to say, because that which was maybe known of God is manifest in them. For God has showed it unto them, for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. And often we look at this verse and we say, you know what? If I look out at the grandeur of the universe and I see the mountains and I see the valleys and I see the rivers and I see the beauty of this world, there are people out there, you look at them and you say, there must be a God. And I'm saying it does not take that. It does not take people to go out and look at mountains and valleys and rivers and say there's a God. Their own mind is telling them there's a God. 
And the very definition of insanity is when you know something, but you refuse to accept, you know truth, but you refuse to accept it. And when it comes to apologetics, we're going to keep returning that person who says, hey, are you right? hey you're a rational thinker. And keep showing them, hey, God is showing himself to you. What will you do with him? It's not a matter of trying to convince them and win an argument. It's a matter of using their own faculties that say, hey, there's God. And what it should do is get them to that point where they say, my thinking is screwed up and I need a savior. So what is apologetics? I mentioned that it's, it's that word apologia. It's derived from the classical Greek word, which means a defense. It's to give an explanation, to reply, to rebut charges. Uh, within Christianity, it's the discipline of providing a defense of reasons for a Christian worldview. It is a tool, nothing more. It's a tool that can be used for, to, uh, f- to establish some sort of framework. I like how Francis Schaeffer calls it. He really calls apologetics pre-evangelism. Pre-evangelism. Because as you have conversations with people and you say, hey, I want to talk to you and I want to I convince you about some logical truth. Until you confront them with the gospel, you have not evangelized. We're not here just to try to convince them that they're wrong. We want to give them the word of God. I like, you know, in Hosea chapter 10, verse 12, it talks about plowing the fallow field. And if you go over into the book of uh, uh, Mark, you'll see the parable of the sower, how some, some seed, the word of God, landed on good ground. Now, I can infer, again, using logic, that that ground is not naturally good. In fact, if we just said that people are naturally have a tendency to receive the Word of God, or, or even if fields are just naturally you know, plowed and ready to go, that would just violate the second law of thermodynamics. All right, Everything is tending to get worse and worse. You don't leave a field fallow and it just gets better over time. You have to replow it. And I do think in the same sense, when we evangelize, there's times when it's going to take people like you who are going to plow the field and prepare it for someone, you maybe later, or someone else to come plant a seed. We have to be faithful to that pre-evangelism, and talking, which means we have to build relationships with these people. This is not a fight. This is not, hey, I'm going to just see how smart you are, and I'm going to see how smart I am, and we're just going to duke it out intellectually. We need to use apologetics as a means, as a tool. So who are apologetics for? I don't have time to go through all this, but they're for Christians. Christians should be able to explain why they have faith in Jesus. Christians should be able to explain why they have a faith in Jesus. Christians should be able to critique unbiblical worldviews. Christians should use their minds and intellect to the glory of God. He allowed you to be a thinking person. Think, and I, I really do believe in our, and especially in, in, in fundamentalism and in, in, in evangelical circles, we've kind of pushed this idea where you can think off to the side, and we've asked people pretty much to just check your brain at the door and just listen to what the pastor says or do whatever you're, you're being told, and, and, and we want people to think for themselves. 
We shouldn't be afraid of thinking about the Word of God. And medit- that's what the Bible says is meditate on it. He doesn't say, hey, listen to the Word of God and really feel it. Or listen to someone else's testimony and just be really inspired by it. The Word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the soul, and it, it divides. You know, Christians throughout history have used apologetics to the glory of God. We've seen it in the early church, the church history. It's been used throughout history. But it's not only good for Christians, but apologetics is good for non-Christians. Because Christian apologetics answer non-Christians' questions and removes distractions from belief. Now, clearly, sometimes non-Christians ask questions to distract from the uncomfortable truth of the gospel, that they are sinners, that they're morally bankrupt. But they will often will ask questions... Sometimes they'll ask them to change the subject, but other times, non-Christians, clearly, they want to know. They're like Pilate who said, what is truth? Don't be threatened when you're asked the question. What we're going to do over the next few weeks is find out how to answer some of those questions. Christian apologetics coupled with evangelism points non-Christians to faith in Jesus Christ. So, your last two blanks, I think, if not, that's fine. Just We're going to take two approaches as we go through it, and I'll hit them real quick. Evidentialism and post-suppositionalism. That's the two approaches we're going to go. You say, what in, what, why is that important? I'm going to tell you why. There's one school of thought that says when it comes to apologetics, we have evidence for everything. In fact, as we look at it, we, we can... And almost what they're saying is we can just set the Bible aside and we can use logic and we can use that natural revelation that is around us. And, and I didn't mention this, but when it comes to the laws of logic and things where the Bible says God is manifested, there is certain natural revelation of God in our, in our world around us to include how we think. And an evidentialist will say, we can take that and it's evidence and we can prove the existence of God. We can, we can make an apologetic that is airtight and they're called evidentialists. I disagree. A presuppositionalist, on the other hand, says, no, we have to presuppose certain things. And in order to, to have a good apologetic, you have to kind of just start with that there is a God. In fact, there's no way even to prove that there's a God. We just step out in faith accepting it to be true. I disagree with that as well. I believe that the use of logic, the laws of logic, are already pointing us to the existence of God. In fact, as you look around, I, uh, around you, you'll see that there is natural revelation pointing people towards there is a God. But it does take special revelation to finish the answer for them. And so what we're going to do over the next few weeks is we're going to take some evidence, but we're going to presuppose some things. I am going to trust that many of you in here believe the Bible to be true. So we're not going to go into that, and we're not going to spend much time in that. We're not going to try to convince you that, that the Bible, you know, we're going to use the Bible, and we're going to act as if it's true. If you disagree and you don't believe the Bible's true, maybe by the end of this you'll say, well, there is a reason to believe it's true. 
So we're going to look at it from those two perspectives, evidence and presupposing. We're going to look at some evidence, but we're going to make some presuppositions. And those are two very, uh, uh, there are some who are in the both of those camps. Some apologists, some very famous apologists who will say, nope, I'm strictly an evidentialist. And some who will say, I'm strictly a presuppositionalist. And I think we're going to be safer if we don't go to one side or the other. We're going to try to stay down in the middle a little bit as best as we can. And there'll be some arguments will say, nope, this is strictly evidence. And then there's others that we will say, hey, we've got to presuppose some things. And we'll explain that as we go. Now, next week, as we continue on, we're going to tackle the topic, the, evidence, or the, the existence of God. What are some of the evidences for the existence of God? And what are we going to presuppose about the existence of God? Now, I have been blessed with an all-expense-paid vacation out somewhere into the Atlantic. So uh, we will have a guest lecturer, a world-renowned scholar, who will come in and will tackle this topic of the, uh, the existence of God for us. And so I encourage you to be here next week. He is going to do a phenomenal job, uh, and uh, he is, uh, he's well-traveled. He's, uh, it's, it's Addison Hagberg. And, uh, and so I, I'm confident he'll, he'll do well at this. Uh, and so that, that'll be next week, the existence of God. And so I'd encourage you to be back. Um, if, uh, if you didn't get the, uh, the blanks filled out, I, I kind of used the outline as a guide uh, as opposed to just staying strictly with it. Uh, just you're better off just handwriting notes in that, uh, that you might find interesting, or uh, you could just sit there and stare at me blankly. That's fine, too. Uh, in fact, last week, I appreciated many of you who were praying for me during the service. Uh, but uh, other than that, uh, I appreciate your, your time and your attention. I hope I wasn't too confusing or too bogged down. But next week, we look at the evidence, for the, uh, uh, evidence and presuppositions for the existence of God. And I think you'll again find we're going to have to rely on how we think. Uh, and, and that's why our worldview is very important. We're going to let the Bible be our guide. But we're also going to employ the laws of logic. Don't be afraid of those. You say, I don't know what they are. It's, some of it's just common sense. All right? Dear Heavenly Father, I pray you bless our time here. Lord, give us safety as we travel home. Watch over, over us. And Lord, I just pray that you'll bring us back Sunday. Lord, we look forward to a day uh, where we can join again together in corporate worship as a body of believers. But Lord, I pray that in the meantime, that we would be the salt and light in this, this world who so desperately needs you. And Father, I pray that you would use us. I pray, though, first and foremost, before we can be salt and light, that, Father, we would have a great, clear relationship with you that is unfettered by sin or anything that might distract us. I pray that you be with us as we leave. In Jesus' name, amen. Toward the hope of our high calling, toward the promise we've received. Thank you for listening. If you have questions about your relationship with God or you would like to know more about the ministry of Good News Baptist Church, please visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org or call us at 757-488-3241. We encourage you to share this message with others. We trust your heart was challenged as you listened and God's word has had an impact on your life as together we strive to show forth the path of life. Press on.